Revelation chapter 2. Believe it or not, after all of these many weeks, we finally made our way to to chapter 2, and I'm ticked off again, y'all. I mean, I I covered 12 verses yesterday, or last Sunday, not one person commended me whatsoever. I mean, I I don't get it, man. Yeah, 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 well, thank you. And there goes my reward, right? (laughs) Um, Well, we took took 16 weeks to get to verse 8, you know? And so we, we covered 12 verses in, in one Sunday, so I thought that was some sort of an accomplishment. But we're going to hit chapter 2 this morning. and uh, I, I've been at this church now going on 14 years, man, I'm telling you. Uh, it, in fact, that's, that's about half my life, almost. Um, but when we, uh, when we first moved to New Philadelphia, we lived, I mean, just right out those doors and right across the street in those, those apartments there. And then Kim Solzner was uh, remodeling a house out on 416, and so he was asking us if we wanted to go move into to that house, and boy, that was, you know, after apartment living, you know, in the years in California and Georgia and all of that, man, this was like going to be the cat's meow. I mean, we're going to be out on 416, y'all. I mean, we're out in farm country, you know, country life. These are the things you dream about, you know. Well, we found out we're not country folks. Um <laughs> You know, we, we thought we were going to do a big garden, you know, and the, the Clarks came out and they tilled the thing, you know, we had this thing, oh, it was beautiful. But then we found out that you got to weed the thing, you know? I mean, and we, don't, we don't have time for all that, and the groundhogs were driving us wild, man. And, uh, you know, I, and, hey, groundhogs are cool, but uh, when you got a garden, they're not, okay? Can you give me an amen on that? <laughs> okay, so... We borrowed this gun from somebody. I don't remember who it was, but uh, we used to we used to take the screen out of our, our kitchen window, and we'd be in there, pow, you know, plugging these in. It got to be kind of fun after a while. That was a scary thing. And uh, so then we we came home, or I, I came home from work one one day for lunch, and, and Jerry is out there with this gun, you know. And now, now, some of you guys are guests, and you don't know who my wife is. I'm just telling you, this is, this is wild, man. You know, I didn't know, even know she could spell gun. And, and here she is out there, and she, she's going like this. You know, I'm pulling in the carport. I'm nervous, you know. I'm thinking maybe there's some man underneath the, the barrel of that thing, you know. And so I, I get out, what, what, what's up, what's up? And, and she, there's this snake. She's been out there. She's been out there hanging up clothes, and this snake is, you know, doing his little thing. And so, you know, she's out there with this gun, and, you know, I come on, you know, I'll take care of this, honey. And and I know that, I know my wife, you know, when when we're killing spiders in the house, uh, she doesn't do spiders, you know. I got to do spiders. So, you know, I I go get the the DP, as it were, and, you know, I'm, I'm... I'm popping these these spiders, but it's not enough for me to just go, you know, flush it. Got to prove it to her, you know. Got to prove that here is the smushed spider, you know. So I know that it's not enough for me to just, you know, tell my wife, well, honey, why don't you go into the house and I'll deal with this thing. It was just a black snake, okay. But you know what? When you're a woman, it doesn't matter what color it is, does it? I mean, if that sucker's a snake, don't want to deal with it. 
And so she's got this gun. I'm afraid, you know, I, I'm not really the gun type myself, you know, and I, I'm afraid, you know, I'm going to do something wrong, going to ricochet and kill me or her or whatever. So the macho man goes and gets a shovel, you know. We're going to deal with this thing. So I, I go in and get the shovel and, bam, you know, right there, knocked the head off. And how many have ever had the joy of doing that? Really? You know, okay. Wow. This is a church full of country folk, man. <laughs> and so it was the wildest thing. If you've never done this, I mean, that, I, I mean the head's over here, and the body is going, <laughs> I mean, the head is disconnected from the body, but this body is just, it's still just moving along. I mean, and if all you did was just look at all of the movement and all of the activity of that body, you would think, sure enough, there's a head around here somewhere. And what we're going to see this morning is a church that was a whole lot like that. You look at the life and the body life of that church, and if you just looked at all the movement and if you just looked at all of the activity, you'd swear there was a head on that thing. But what the Bible says about this church is they left their head. They had a lot of movement, a lot of great things going on that looked like a lot of godly activity, but they left the head who, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So there's some things that, that the Lord can teach us this morning. I want us to just stop for a moment. And why don't we bow our heads together and open our hearts. And would you ask the Lord as we go through this today to reveal to you things about this church, things about your life that He wants to address this morning? Now, Lord, I, I pray that as we, we go to Your Word, we pray that Your Spirit would take it, You would reveal its truth to us, and we pray that because of what You show us today, that we would be honest with You, that we would put our lives next to what we see in the Word of God, and where we come up lacking, I pray that there would be confession of sin and turning today. For those that are here this morning that have never received you as their Savior, I pray that this would be the day that they would open their heart to you, that through this today they would see who you really are. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we took a long time coming through chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. We did so by design. There were so many new people coming into our church at... Uh, when we started this, we started on Easter Sunday, and what we were trying to do is just make sure that we all understood a lot of things that we were going to need to see as we moved through the rest of the book of Revelation. And then last Sunday, to me, it was just a, 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 it was a blessed time, not because I was the one doing the teaching, but just because of the, the passage we were dealing with. As John revealed to us what the Lord revealed to him about himself, and we went through the description and we saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And in the midst of that, he tells John to write seven letters to seven churches. And this morning, we're going to pick up with the first 
of those seven letters. And as we do this over the course of the next several months, what we're going to see is that there is a definite pattern that the Lord establishes with each one of these letters. There is a commission. You can see this on your study sheet. There is a commission. There is character, the character quality of Christ that we were introduced to in chapter 1. You're going to see in each one of these letters, you're going to see that uh, various aspects of that character as he presents himself to each of these churches. We're going to find in these churches a commendation. That is, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to commend them for certain things. We're also going to find a condemnation where the Lord addresses the things uh, in that church that he wants to condemn, the things that he wants to deal with. And then we're going to see a correction in each one of these letters. How do we correct this problem? We'll see a call, and then we'll also see a challenge. And this will be the basic outline that we'll follow over the course of the next several weeks. And now this morning we'll pick up in chapter 2 and verse 1 with the commission. Look at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now, now stop there for just a second. We, we've talked a lot in this church, and we, we've talked about it since we began the study of the book of Revelation, that every passage in the Bible has three applications. First of all, there is an historical application, and that is, historically, this was a real church in Ephesus, and our Lord wrote this letter in 90 to 95 A.D. or so to address real situations that were actually going on in the church at Ephesus. But then there's an inspirational or devotional application, and that is the church at Ephesus represents a type of church. And the characteristics that we're going to see in this church are characteristics that are going to be found in churches all down through the centuries. And so all types of various churches can come to these seven letters, and specifically today, to this one in Ephesus, and make specific application to their own church where they see those same or similar characteristics found in them. And then there's the, the doctrinal or the prophetic application, and that is the actual teaching of the passage. And we've seen by the way that God has laid out the book of Revelation that there is a very definite doctrinal or prophetic application to these, these seven letters. You remember last week, now, we talked about the fact that God has so laid out the book of Revelation that it divides very neatly into three parts. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, in Revelation 19 and verse 11, there is something that divides the book of Revelation for us. The scripture tells us that we are to study, to show ourselves, approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, it's not up to us to just haul off and just start dividing the scripture wherever we desire. What we'll find as we study the word of God is he will reveal where it is to be divided for us. In the book of Revelation, heaven opens only two times in this book. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens and somebody goes up. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, heaven opens and somebody comes down. Those two events right there divide the book of Revelation into three parts. Somebody going up, what you'll find is John with a picture of the church is caught up. There's a trumpet, the whole deal. What it is is the rapture of the church. Revelation 19, somebody coming down. It is the one riding a white horse. You know, a sword, a two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. So in the book of Revelation, 
What we've got is divided into three parts. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then the rapture, chapters 4 through 19. The second coming. And then the remainder of the book, chapters 20 to 22. Now, when you see that, when you understand those two things that, that take place in the book, and the fact that, look back in chapter 1 and verse 10, what it tells us in this verse is that John received this revelation from the Lord on the Lord's day. And what we, we went into the, the Scripture and we let the Bible define for us the Bible. The, what we found out is that the Spirit of God had picked John up off of the Isle of Patmos spiritually and had catapulted him ahead into another dimension of time, specifically to the Lord's day. The Lord's Day is not Sunday. The Lord's Day in the Bible is the day of the Lord. It is the time of the second coming of Christ. And from the standpoint of someone who is standing out at the time of the second coming of Christ, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. From the standpoint of someone at the second coming of Christ, he is told to write about that which is past, that which is present, and the future. And from that standpoint, as John wrote about the past, he would have looked over his shoulder and he would have seen the church age. And that's what he writes about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so doctrinally, the seven letters to the seven churches are actually representative of seven periods of the, of the church age. The, the seven letters and the, the content of those seven letters form an outline through which we can walk all the way through the history of the church from the time after the book of Acts leaves off with its history all the way up to the rapture, which coincidentally enough, if you'll just look over there, you'll again, you'll see it in chapter 4 and verse 1, immediately after the conclusion of that seventh letter to that seventh church representing that seventh period of church history, which we are now presently living in, the church of the Laodiceans, okay, and again, it's important for you to nail this down this morning, what time we're presently living in. We are living in the seventh period of church history, that seventh and final period. Now, the purpose in our message this morning is not going to be the doctrinal application of this, you know, this letter to the church at Ephesus. What I want to do this morning is I want to center our attention on, on you and, and me and this church and the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what he wants to do in all of our lives individually, what he wants to do in, in this church. But I do want you to be familiar as we're beginning to go through this letter to the Ephesians or to the church at Ephesus this morning. I do want you to be familiar with that term Laodicean, that group of people that represents the believers in this period of time that we are presently living in. And I think it's important for you to understand at least a little bit of what the Lord says about those people. Look, look in chapter 3. This is what the Lord is commenting about the believers that are alive on this planet during this period of time. He says these are the things that are characteristic. You'll see beginning in verse 16. In fact, back it up to verse 15. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. And, and, but he says that you're lukewarm. And one of the things you notice about this church, the period of time that we're presently living in, it is a time where Jesus says the characteristic during this period of time is that it, the church is, 
is lukewarm. It is a period of time as well. As he goes on here, he begins to talk about that it is a period of time of self-deception. This is a period of time when the church thinks one thing is true about itself, when the Lord says that the exact opposite is true about it. Spiritually, what Jesus says here in the letter to the Laodiceans is that spiritually we are rich and increased with goods and we think that we have need of nothing. And he says, and you really don't understand that what the reality is is that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And what you really need to do is to get back to square one as far as your relationship with God is concerned. And that's what's characteristic of the time that we're presently living in. And it's very important that you understand that as a backdrop as we begin to look at this letter written to the church at Ephesus. So understand that there are those three layers of application when we're dealing with, in verse 1, when it talks about the church of Ephesus. Let me just say a couple of things, uh, at least to familiarize you with the city of Ephesus, where this church was actually located in approximately 90 to 95 A.D. Ephesus... Uh, If you go back and take the time to read about it, and we don't want to get into all of this crusty history, but I do want you to at least get some of this uh, this down. Ephesus was was a beautiful city. It was one of the largest uh, metropolitan cities of Asia Minor. It was a it was a great port. It was uh, a center of the banking industry. In fact, it was called the marketplace of Asia. It would have been, in fact, the key place. In all of Asia Minor at that point, it would have been a a key city like we would think in terms of New York or L.A., Chicago, Miami, that kind of a a thing. That's what the city of Ephesus was was really all about, and that's obviously why it's mentioned first of the the seven churches. Now, if you and maybe you can take the time to do this sometime. A lot of you have maps in the back of your Bible. And if you were to look at, the, at this, these seven churches that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3, and if you were to take a, a, a modern-day map, what you'd find is that these seven churches are located in the area of Asia Minor today, in an area that would be uh, basically where the area of, of Turkey is. And what you'd find about these seven churches is they are located along an arching road that kind of connects the, the urban centers of Asia Minor in kind of a a circular route and again the, the the cities in that part of the world uh, at that time of all of those Ephesus Ephesus would have been one of the, the the queen cities it was an unbelievable city a beautiful city and yet at the same time it was unbelievably wicked you remember uh, back in Acts chapter 19 when Paul brought the gospel to that city one of the chief characteristics of that city was a temple that was there the temple of Diana it was a uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, it's even referred to as the wonder of wonders of all of the, the seven. And, and, of course, Diana was the, the female goddess of fertility. And so here is this incredible temple. But this thing is inhabited with hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes. And so, obviously, it was a major tourist attraction for all various types of, of reasons. And you remember when... When Paul did bring that gospel in there in Acts chapter 19, uh, on his second missionary journey, there were so many people that were coming to Christ, and it was starting to interfere with the, 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 the temple and those who were employed by the temple and the money and all of this kind of thing. The Scripture says that it created no small stir. I mean, it, it just had the entire city of Ephesus all in an uproar, 
And of course, a church was founded there. In fact, the scripture teaches in Acts chapter 20 that Paul remained in the city of Ephesus for a period of three years. And I mean, when you just start to look at the teachings that this church had, I mean, it was incredible. Paul said that, that he had not shunned to declare unto them the whole counsel or all the counsel of God. I mean, Paul, I mean, what an incredible teacher. And he says, I taught you everything that I knew to teach you. It says there in Acts chapter 20 that he taught them with tears day and night for that space of, of, of three years. So this was a, it was a strong church. It was a mature church. In fact, if you look at the list of pastors, of those that came after Paul, I mean, Apollos comes into this place, a very eloquent man. And then here comes Timothy. Timothy is the pastor after that. And then the Apostle John himself, we talked about that last week. Okay, so that's just a, a little bit of the background to let you know what was taking place in the city of Ephesus. And then verse 1 says that the letter is written to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And I, I really don't want us to get too caught up on that because we did deal with that last week. And uh, for time's sake, we'll just bypass that this morning. But let's look next at the character, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ through which he introduces himself to, the, to this church. Look further at verse 1. He says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. And if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the one holding the seven stars is the Lord Jesus Christ. Go on in, in verse 1 of chapter 2. And he is the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And again, verse 20 of chapter 1 defines that for you. The seven golden candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And then Roman numeral 3 on your outline, the commendation. In, in verses 2, 3, and 6, our Lord commends this church for several characteristics that it possessed. And, and let me tell you, folks, and this is why I'm trying, to, I'm trying to rush to get to this point, because this church had an incredible amount on the ball. I'm, I'm telling you something. There, there are some things that we can learn about what the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for in, in a church by taking note of the characteristics that he commends as he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. Because the church at Ephesus, guys, was, I'm telling you, it was an unbelievable church. It was a church that was doing a whole lot of things right. First of all, it was a hard-working church. It was a hard-working church. He says in verse 2, I know thy works. And folks, you can bet he does. Again, look at the end of verse 1 again. He says, I am he who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And we, again, we, we talked about that last Sunday night, how he is in the midst of a church that is carrying out the Great Commission and a church that is seeking to do what has been instructed for the church of Jesus Christ in this age. And he, he says, as the one who is walking in the midst of the church, not as an outsider, but as one who is in the very midst of that church, he says, I want you to know something. I know thy works. Now, what works do you reckon that it is that he is talking about here? What works? Well, let's see if God can define that for us. Turn back, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
And of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter. The church at Corinth was a church that was just absolutely plagued with problems, and he addresses all kinds of stuff in this letter, but he gives more space to the resurrection than any other subject in the entire book. And at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about the proof of the resurrection, then he moves on to the necessity of it, and the promise of it, he shows the benefits of it. And by the time he gets to the end of the chapter, I mean, he is so absolutely beside himself that he is about to have a hallelujah fit. If you've ever taught the Word of God in any kind of setting, you know what he's going through here. You know what you're going to say. And while you're saying it, it's just absolutely fueling you because you're just getting so excited about the truth that you're talking about. And that's what's happening to, to Paul as he's writing this, this 15th chapter concerning the resurrection. And let's pick up in verse 54. He says, So when this corruptible that is, this corruptible body, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he starts talking to death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, oh come on, come on, oh, grave. You, you see what I'm saying here? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after all that, he comes to verse 58, and he says, Therefore, in other words, because all of that is true, here's what we need to make sure that we're doing about it. My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because the resurrection is true, what he says is we are to get our feet planted in the Lord's work so that they are steadfast, unmovable and always abounding in it now if that's true first of all we better determine what the work of the lord is because that's what it is that we're to be steadfast unmovable and always abounding in now a lot of you folks who are in the midst of discipleship in this church you know this already there's a lot of other folks that haven't quite caught on to all of this but the work of the lord and this is really deep but i bet you can get it what the work of the lord is is the work that the Lord did when He was here working. You see what I'm talking about? About how deep that is? The work of the Lord is the work that the Lord did when He was here working. So what work did He do? Well, He did a lot of things. But really, you can take all of them and you can break them down into two basic things. Evangelism and edification. Evangelism, Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says... For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Edification, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, He spake to His disciples of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And you know what those two things actually are? Those are the two basic components of discipleship. It's what our Lord meant when He told us to make disciples in all nations. Do you, do you understand, folks, that discipleship begins with evangelism it begins with winning people to christ you can't be a disciple if you're lost so discipleship begins with evangelism it begins with leading a person to jesus christ but it doesn't stop there it continues in edification or or building them up helping them to grow teaching them to observe all things that our lord had commanded 
That's what our Lord did while He was on this earth working. And that's the work that He has given the church to do. Now listen, in light of that, if that's what the work of the Lord is, if that's what we have been commissioned by Him to do, when He says over there in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2 to this church at Ephesus, I know thy works. Listen, that's the work that this church at Ephesus was doing. It was the work that they were steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in. You say, well, how do you know that they were doing it like that? Because I guarantee you, our Lord isn't going to commend anybody for doing the work that He left us here to do if we're not doing it the way that He left us and instructed us to do it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, He tells us what that work is, and He tells us how it is that we are to be doing that thing. And I guarantee you, He's not going to set the standard here in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 and then commend somebody for doing something less than what He said right there. And I think it's, I think it's really hard for those of us who are living in the Laodicean age to really comprehend what it says there in verse 58 about being steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you see, in the Laodicean age, we're rich and increased with goods, and we have need of nothing. And you see, as the new little catchphrase talks about it, we've got a life, man. I mean, we've got, we've got our jobs, and we've got... We've got houses, and we've got our lawns to take care of, and we've got cars, and we've got boats, and we've got IRAs, and we've got appointments, and wow! Man, there is no end to the life that we've got. But what you've got to understand is that in 95 A.D., in the city of Ephesus, when these people came to Christ, the work of the Lord became their life. I mean, all of a sudden, guys, after all those years in, in, in pagan, idolatrous, Religion, do you understand that all of a sudden now they had a reason to live? And here we are in the Laodicean age. And I mean, we get somebody trained in how to disciple and, and, and we break away from our, our life for an hour or two a, a, a week and, and we sit down and we disciple someone and man, we think we have set the woods on fire, don't we? Wow, I'm just steadfast, unmovable, always about in the work of the Lord because... For two hours out of the 168 that he gave me, man, I'm, I'm making disciples. And you see, the problem is we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. Oh, man, hey, listen, I, I'm thrilled about all the things that are going on in this church and with the ministry of discipleship. But I don't want us to just think that the Lord's going to start throwing accolades around and, and would commend necessarily all of us for the work that we're doing when it comes to discipleship because we offer this much time in the midst of a week. What he commends here is a church that was steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the standard. And our Lord, after walking in the midst of the church at Ephesus, wow, he says, I want you to know something. I know thy works. It was a 1 Corinthians 15, 58, working church. They were steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, let's just talk about it practically for just a second. You know, if the Lord today, and He's not going to do this because the revelation of God, of course, is complete, but 
if the Lord were going to write a letter to First Baptist Church, what do you think that he would, he would say to us about the work of this church? You see, he's still walking in the midst of the churches, even though it's 1,900 years later. He's still walking in the midst of the churches, and he's still examining our work. What do you think that the Lord would want to say about our work, about how we're seeking to save the lost, about what we're doing to mature new believers that God does allow us to win in the faith and to help them to grow, and how it is that we're seeking to take his word to the ends of the earth? What do you think, think that the Lord would want to say if you were writing a letter to this church? And you know what? Let's even bring it down a little bit deeper. What do you think the Lord would want to write to you about your work, about how you are carrying out His work in these last days of the Laodicean church period? What would He want to say to you about how you seek the lost, about how you're praying that God would open doors of utterance for you to be able to speak the mysteries of Christ to those around you? What would he want to say to you about your involvement in what's taking place as far as world evangelization is concerned through this church? And he, he, he writes to this church at Ephesus, and he commends them. He says, man, I want you to know something. I've been walking in your midst, and I've been watching. I've been watching how you carry out my work. And I'm blessed. I commend you for that. The next thing, it was a it was a persevering church. It was a persevering church. Revelation chapter two and verse two goes on to say, "I know thy labor and thy patience." Now let's just stop right there on this thing of thy labor. I know thy labor. Now works and labor sound like they're the same thing until you see how God uses the word, and that's always the way that we determine how a word is to be defined, the way that God uses it in his Bible. We believe that the best commentary in the Bible is, of course, the Bible. We believe that the Bible is a self-defining book. And what you can find about this word labor is the word is found 19 times in the New Testament, and five of the 19 times that it, it, you, you find it, it is translated trouble. Trouble. The word has to do with the trouble the church at Ephesus had to face in order to carry out the work of the Lord. Do you see that? We talked about it last week. We are companions in tribulation, John said. Listen, if you have a life, and through your life you are seeking to carry out the work of the Lord, I promise you, you are going to have trouble in your life. And that's what he's talking about here. We can get a pretty uh, good idea. Uh, turn back to, to 2 Corinthians 11. We can get a pretty good idea over here in this book of what it was like to carry out the work of the Lord at this period of time in, in history. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is uh, establishing the proof of his apostleship compared to others who were influencing the Corinthian church. And he says in verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I, I speak as a fool. I am more. And now here's our word. In labors more abundant. And, and now watch the trouble that he goes on to describe here. Watch the labors that he goes on to describe. 
in stripes above measure. In other words, being beaten with a whip. It leaves stripes on you. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Now watch this word in verse 27. In weariness, same word again, different translation of the word, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Do you get the idea? That's a quite a bit of trouble that the man is going through to carry out the work of the Lord. And this would have been characteristic in this period of time, in that first century, as the Roman government, pagan Rome, was just annihilating Christians. They made it as difficult as they could possibly get, uh, could make it, uh, on believers in Jesus Christ who were seeking to carry out the mission and what we just read here is a great example of what it would have been like to be in the church at Ephesus and be carrying out the work of the Lord. Now, now go back to Revelation 2 again. The Lord says, I know thy labors. Are you, are you hearing that? He says, I, I know the trouble and persecution you face as you carry out my work. I, I know that. I see that. And, and look at the next part of verse 2. Because it's, it's connected to their, their labor. He says, I know thy labor and thy patience. In other words, I, I know how you have faced all of this adversity with patience. And again, I think to get the impact of what he's saying here, we need to let him define the word for us. He gives us a great definition by how he translates this same word over in Revel uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 7. It is translated there, patient continuance in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6 the same word is translated enduring and in the context specifically enduring suffering for the work of the Lord's sake in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5 it's translated patient waiting so do you get the idea our Lord is commending this church for how they patiently and consistently continued to carry out His work even in the face of persecution. How they waited patiently on the Lord as the psalmist said in Psalm 40 for Him to incline unto them. And they endured suffering. He picks up on that same idea in, in verse 3. He says, And hast borne... The, the church at Ephesus was a, a church that was called to, to bear some things. The, the word born there is the same word used in John 19 and verse 17 when it says of the Lord, and He, bearing His cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull. And this too was a church that was called to bear a cross. And the Lord says in writing the commendation to them, and you've borne it. And look at the rest. And hast patience. And for my name's sake, 
has labored. For my glory's sake, you faced all of this pain and, and all of this trouble and all of this bloodshed and all of this suffering and all of the death that's been all around you. And look at the last part of verse 3. And hast not fainted. You've remained faithful. This was a persevering church. And oh my goodness, folks, do we need, in the Laodicean age, do we need to learn from this church? Because quite honestly, folks, we're not steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And quite honestly, we don't even really have anything to bear, do we? I mean, compared to the things that we're, we're seeing, the church at Ephesus and Paul and these people in the first century were called to bear for the work of the Lord. Hey, we're not even in the ballpark, right? I mean, we're not even in, in the arena. We, we don't face any kind of persecution. I mean, I mean, somebody may snicker every once. I mean, that, that's, that's nothing compared with getting your brain beat out. I mean, it, it's nothing. And then the Lord commends them for, for something else in this church. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, if you've gotten yourself away from it. He also commends them for being a disciplining church. A disciplining church. He says in the middle of verse 2, And I know how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And you know what that tells you, folks? What that tells you is that this was a, a holy church. And, and you've got to see the, the contrast here. Now, now oh, oh let, the, let, let God show you something this morning about yourself and about this period of time. Do you see this, guys? They could, they could bear the imprisonments. And they could bear the, the beatings and the scourgings. And they could bear watching their, their loved ones shred to bits by wild animals in the Roman arena. They could watch their loved ones have their, their limbs torn out of the socket. They could endure that themselves. They could endure having their heads chopped off and, and burned alive and having their eyes burn out with hot pokers. But there was one thing. I mean, they could endure all of that, but there was one thing that this church could not bear. I mean, it was too much for them. They couldn't endure it. They just couldn't seem to, to muster up the patience. They couldn't tolerate it. And that was someone who named the name of Christ but was living in sin. Wow. You mean you're patient through all of that other, but you're impatient when it comes to this? You see what I'm saying? They're a whole lot different than us, aren't they? Because we, we can bear them which are evil. We just can't bear the thought of going to a brother who is overtaken in a fault, as it says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, and in the spirit of meekness, seek to restore such a one. Oh, oh no, not, not me. No, You've got to understand, I'm, <laughs> well, I, I'm, just not a, I'm just not a confrontive type of a person. You, you know what I mean? I, I, just, I just could never, never do that. And, and you know what I hear all, all the time? It, when someone wants to justify why they don't confront others, what they want to do in justifying themselves is they want to tell what kind of a person they are. And what I want to make sure is we're looking at this church that if we're going to make that same justification that at least we'll identify it biblically. Listen, rather than saying you're just not a I'm just not a confronting kind of a person, from now on when you, when you see your brother's sin and you want to explain what kind of person that you are, 
because you won't confront them. Tell people it's because you're the kind of person who has a very high tolerance for sin. Don't, please, don't, don't, don't talk about, I'm just such a loving individual. No. Tell people the truth. Tell people, I've got a real high tolerance for sin. Tell them you're the kind of person who really doesn't care whether or not the church of Jesus Christ accomplishes its purpose from the platform of holiness. Tell them it's because you're not the kind of person who could look at someone like that and have the audacity of going up and embarrassing them like that while they are embarrassing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And as it talks about in Romans chapter 2 and verse 24 about how we give occasion to the world to blaspheme the name of the Lord by the way that we live. Hey, listen, folks, if we're going to tell people what kind of persons we are, what kind of people we are, let's, let's, let's nail it biblically. And you see, some of, some of you felt justified in, in bearing them which are evil because you're such a loving person and, and to make them face their sin and, and disobedience and, and all of that. Oh, I'm just, I'm just too loving of a person. And you know what? I really don't mind that justification because there is some truth to them. The reason that we won't confront them is because we love ourselves too much. And we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ enough. So yeah, you're, you're right. You're, you're too loving. You love yourself too much. I love myself too much. Because if you see, if we really loved the Lord, we'd want to see Him glorified. And we would see the, the, the spot and the blemish that people in our own midst who are living lives of evil, we'd see that spot and blemish that they're putting on the Lord's church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25-27 through 27 says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, having, uh, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it, that it should be a holy church without spot and blemish. And listen, if He gave Himself and He shed His blood and gave His life for you and me so that He could have a holy spotless, wrinkle-free, unblemished church, I don't really think it's too much that he asked us folks to simply carry out the basic instruction of Scripture to confront those who are living in sin so that the purity of the church of Jesus Christ might be maintained. Do you? Amen. Hey, I'm telling you guys, I, I need this. This is the church right here. We, we need this. We need to see that this is something that the Lord commends this church for because they could not bear them which are evil. They could not bear those who lived in sin and disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a church that disciplined them. They confronted them with their sin. And if the people wouldn't respond, just like it says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15-20, through 20, they took one or two with them and they confronted them again. And if they still wouldn't hear, they informed the whole church and then the whole church went to seek to restore them to fellowship. And if they still wouldn't repent, they put them out of the church, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
And quite honestly, folks, that's something that this church still needs to learn. And we've positioned ourselves through our covenant and through how we bring in new members and and people into this fellowship. We've structured ourselves to discipline sin in this place. And yet right now, this very moment, in this fellowship, we are bearing them which are evil. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a sec. And let me just show you one quick thing that I think God gives us over here to shed some light on what it actually means to, to not be able to bear them which are evil. I mean, if this is something that He commends, let, let's, let's see if we can find out exactly what that means. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 5, the issue was that there was a case of, of, of sexual immorality that was going on in the church, and they weren't disciplining the thing. They were bearing them which are evil. Verse 2 even says that they were even puffed up about it, which probably means that it was a big enough deal for everybody in the church to, to gossip about to one another. Hey, hey, did you hear about... But nobody was going to the persons involved. Sound familiar? Everybody's talking about it to everybody else, but nobody's going to the people that are involved in the thing. And then then watch this great description the Lord gives about how they should have been feeling and and what they should have been doing. Look at verse 2. And have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. I mean, there you have it, folks. God's definition of not bearing them which are evil. Not bearing them which are evil is mourning over the sin of those in the church for the Lord's sake, mourning for Him, and for the Lord's sake, doing whatever needs to be done to see the sin removed, even if it means ultimately removing the person doing the sinning. Let me ask you something. Have you ever mourned over the sin of someone else in this this body? Because of the spot and the stain and the blemish that it put on the name of our Lord? Have you ever been there? This was a church that couldn't bear them which are evil. Then there's one other characteristic that our Lord commends this church for. And once again, it's one of those that for those of us living in the Laodicean church period, man, we need to perk up our ears and, and, and learn from because we are so far from practicing it. Next, our Lord commends them because it was an intolerant church. Because it was an intolerant church. Now, you've got to let this sink into your head. Our Lord is commending them because of their intolerance. And you see, that goes totally against the grain of us Laodiceans. Because you see, what we really admire today, what we hold up as an example of true godliness is tolerance. Somebody that just can go with the flow in whatever circumstances they may happen to be in. Man, what a godly guy that is. He's just so tolerant. But look at what our Lord praises the church in the Ephesus, in this church at Ephesus for in the middle of verse 2. He says, And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles 
and are not and hast found them liars. Now, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, we don't want to become extremists here. We don't want to, we don't want to sound like we're too dogmatic. We don't want to sound like we think we're the only ones who are right. I and mean, we don't want to be offensive. You see, that's not the way that the baby boomers respond today for, you know, people who, who are as aggressive as what this church in Ephesus was about. You see, what we need to make sure that we're doing in this period of time is we need to make sure that we keep the message positive. We need to make sure that we don't ever mention another denomination in a negative way. We want to make sure that we never mention another name of a, of a person publicly who is teaching false doctrine or anything. You know, because the Bible does say we're not supposed to judge. But verse 1 says that Jesus was walking in the midst of this church at Ephesus and one of the best qualities that he found in the church is that they knew what they believed about this book and when someone came along and said they were speaking for God, they took what it was that they were saying and they tried it next to the infallible standard of the Word of God and if it didn't line up, they didn't just, they didn't just turn them off. They didn't just stop listening. They exposed them they didn't say, well, you know, it, it seems that in this area they, they may be an error, but, you know, they do name the name of Jesus Christ, and that's what's really important. So let's don't make this an issue. No, they tried what these so-called apostles were saying next to the Word of God, and when it didn't line up, they said, hey, you know what? This guy is a... Thank you. This guy is a liar. What he says doesn't line up with this book. He, he says he's speaking for God. He's not speaking for God. I don't care how many things he, he says that are right. I don't care if he does claim to be speaking for God. I don't care if he does use the Bible. I don't care if he is a good, godly man. I don't care how godly of a life the guy's living. I don't care how long he's been in the ministry. I don't care how many degrees he's got after his name. I don't care if he does know Greek and Hebrew and, and all of those things. I don't care if he has expounded the Word of God in all these continents and all these kind of things. I don't care if he's a trusted Bible scholar. I don't care how loving of a man he seems to be. I don't care how many people claim to, to be a Christian who are following what he says. What he says doesn't line up with this book. So what that does is it makes him a liar. Now, what do you think about that? Whew, man. I mean, that sounds like the most negative thing I've ever heard of in my life. Jesus walking in the midst of the church says, I want you to know, I love it. I like that, man. I like a place that is just going to call it what it is. I don't care. It, it, man, it doesn't matter who they offend. If somebody is uh, teaching false Doctrine in a church, man. If you're exposing it, Jesus says, I like that. Laodiceans don't. What we do is we say, you know what? That's just totally uncalled for. I'm not sure that that's necessary. That is so un unloving. Isn't that what you hear today? When people stand for the truth of the Word of God. And yet, I want it, what I want you to see here, Jesus commends them for it. He commends them for it. And then, they were also commended for being intolerant, not just with false doctrine and false apostles, but look at verse 6. He says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Laodiceans, there's two words that we, we, we're using here that Laodiceans don't like. They don't like anybody to use the word liar in reference to anybody. And they don't like the word hate. You know? I mean, 
what a insulting word because Laodiceans, oh, we, we, just, we just love. We love everybody and we love everything. We saw just a couple of weeks ago from the book of 1 John that you don't love God. You don't love for love's sake. What he says in the book of 2 John, you can check it out. You love for truth's sake. And when truth is violated, what the book of 2 John says, you better redirect your love. Woo! The Laodiceans need to check out the book of 2 John. Doesn't sit well, does it? Okay, now check this out. The Lord commends them in verse 6 for what they hated you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the Lord says, and you know what? That's great because, man, I do too. I, I hate that junk too. You say, well, what, what's that? Well, the word Nicolaitan is a, it's a transliteration. That, that means that when the King James translators came to this word, there was no English equivalent, so they couldn't make it a translation because it wouldn't translate. So they transliterated the word. They just gave it an English sound. But it comes from two Greek words, Nico, which means to conquer, and laos, which means laity. Nicolaitans were those who through their deeds, listen, conquered the laity, the common man, your average guy that sits in the pew. And all through the history of the church, folks, as far back as the first century in the city of Ephesus, there's been the problem of people putting themselves above other people in the body of Christ people who have made themselves the paid professionals who ride shod over the common people. And Jesus says, oh, buddy, I hate that. And you see, the reason that he hates that so badly is when he came to this earth, there was a group of people who were riding shod over the common people. It was the scribes and the Pharisees. And you know what's interesting? The scribes and Pharisees had a real hard time following Jesus. They had a real hard time listening to the teaching of Jesus. They had elevated themselves above the people and they had intimidated the people to death. And yet, these are the people who can't hear what Jesus is saying because they live in pride and, 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 and self-righteousness. But you've got to love what it says in Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. You know what it says? The common people heard Him gladly. The common people heard him gladly and you mark it down folks the lord jesus christ is a champion for the common man and anybody who sets themselves up above the common man through whatever deed it may be making them come to them to find forgiveness of sins or, or making them come through them to know what god says or to come to their church to get something from god or as it is in our day coming to them to get the real meaning of what God said because you see as a common man you really can't know the deep things of God. I know that the Spirit of God says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that He will reveal to you the deep things but you see you don't know the original Hebrew and Greek and so you need to come and I will expound the Word of God so that you can understand it. Jesus says, you know what? Oh, I hate that. And man, Ephesus, I'm glad you guys hate that. Man, we're, 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 we, we've got something in common right there. You see, folks, Jesus doesn't want anybody riding shod over you. You see, what, what, the reason that he hates that so bad is because as soon as that happens, what happens? 
is Satan has shut down the effectiveness of the church because you see if you can't understand the Bible then why are you going to even waste time to read it much less study it I mean if you've got to come to me to, to, get, to get this thing or if you've got to get to God to come to you're in big trouble let me tell you you know what Jesus says man I, I just I just hate that thing because I know the disastrous effect that people who put themselves in positions over the common man, I know how it's going to shut down the effectiveness of Christ. And I'm telling you, you know, you just step back and you just look at the things that the Lord was commending this church for. It was a discipling church. They, they, were, they knew what the work of the Lord was, and they were working it, buddy. And it was a disciplined church, even in the face of persecution and suffering. They labored. They were bearing whatever was the Satan and... and the enemies of God's people were dished out on them. They did it with patience. It was a disciplining church. It, wouldn't, it was a holy church. It wouldn't tolerate sin in its midst. It wouldn't tolerate false doctrines, false teachings of any kind. You know what? I, I, I've been you know, contrasting Laodicea this morning in this period of time that we're living in. And yet, you know what, guys? And, and you know, I, I know a lot of the things we've said this morning, I know they've, they've been hard, but listen. This is a good church. I'm talking about First Baptist New Philadelphia. You know what? In, in, a, in a large degree, the things that the Lord is commending the church at Ephesus for, you know, I, I, again, I, I don't think we're hitting on all the cylinders that we ought to be hitting on right now, but you know what? Man, this is, this is a church that's got a lot of those same things, you know? I mean, man, the biggest amen we got today was when we got on that big roll about you know, evil in the midst and, and liars, you know, with all that. Man, this is a church that, man, wants to take a stand and, and wants to do the work of the Lord. I mean, we've had hundreds and hundreds of you on the foreign field carrying out the mission and, and you're doing it through the week. And yeah, I mean, we can, we can learn some things about abounding and being steadfast and all those things in the work of the Lord. But man, I want you to know, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of this place. I, I think this is, this is, uh, there's not another place on this planet where I would even desire to go. But I want you to notice that while Jesus says all of those things were true of that church, I want you to notice the condemnation He has for him in verse 4. He says, nevertheless. In, in other words, in spite of all of those wonderful com commendations that I just had for you, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And do you see this, folks? Now, 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 now listen. It's possible for you to have all of these incredible things that we've just listed there. All of those things going on in your life or, or in the life of, of our church and, and be connected to all of the right beliefs and connected to all of the right activities and connected in taking all of the right stands and yet be disconnected from Him. Now, are you catching that? Now, 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 listen. Because some of us are there right now. It's possible to come to the place where you're more in love with the things of God than you are God Himself. It's, it's just real easy, folks. And we've got to watch it in a church like ours that knows the mission and the doors are open and people are active and all of these things and you're hearing from the pulpit the, the, you know, sound doctrine we need to hold fast the form of sound doctrine as Paul wrote to Titus and Timothy and you know, yeah, 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 yeah you know what? you can get to the point 
where in the midst of all of that, you've left Jesus. You leave, you leave His person. All of this stuff going on, and yet you treat the Lord Jesus Christ as if He was an entity. Or that he's just a he's a power that's out there, or he's he's a, a force rather than a person, a, a person who loved all of us so much that he died, that we would have a personal love relationship with him. It, it's it's just real easy, folks, and you got to watch it because you can get to the point to where you continue to go to the Word, and because you think. As long as you're in the Word, you think you're okay, but it's possible to get to the point to where you continue to go to the Word, but not, not to know Him, not, not to deepen your relationship with Him, not to become more I- intimate in your relationship with Him, but, but going to get sermons, Pastor Mark, other pastors, g- going... Not, not to know God, but going to get a Sunday school lesson, going to get ready for discipleship, studying to get ready for discipleship too, studying for shepherd school, going to get information to, to wow people about what you know about the Bible rather than going to get something that's going to cause you to say, whoa, it's me. It's just real easy. And you see, because we're still in the Bible, this is, it's so deceptive. We, we think we're okay because that's what we're supposed to do in the Christian life, isn't it? No. This is a means to a love relationship with Jesus. And, and that's why we go... Let, let me ask you something. What is it that fuels you in your service for the Lord Jesus Christ right now? C- can you really say that what's fueling you with all the strong stands that you take, with all of the missions trips that you're taking, with the people that you're discipling, can you, can you honestly say that what is fueling you in all of that is Jesus? What is it that fuels you to live the holy life that you're living? Is it your desire to be holy as He is, is holy? Or has it gotten to the place in your life where it's... it's Pretty much just a, a, a pattern now. It's it just gotten to the place to where it's just an unbelievably good habit to live a holy life, but it really doesn't have anything to do with, with Jesus or your love for Jesus. Again, it's just my life now. This is the way I live. Would, you, would your life be characterized right now by where you don't go or by where the Lord's taking you. By what you don't do or by what the Lord is is doing through you. You know what, folks? The church at Ephesus is a great lesson for a church like this one who's sound in its doctrine and knows why it believes what it believes and won't compromise truth and is seeking to to deal with sin in the fellowship. Boy, it's just real easy to be uh, caught up in, in the machinery of everything that's going on around you and at the very same time 
have left the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so caught up in the work of the Lord that we were talking about earlier that we have left the Lord of the work. And like we were talking about at the beginning, like that snake, there is that brief period of time where it can be separated from the head and the body still be carrying out all of the movement and all of the activities. And if you just look at the body, it's going along okay. But it's just a brief time. And some of you right now, you're living in that brief moment. And we've come to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 today, so the Lord could say, Oh yeah, oh man, these are wonderful things, and I commend you for them. They're wonderful. And you need to, you need to hold up, because you've left something. You've left the most important thing. You've left me. And then quickly, let's look at the correction. You know what? If, if you find yourself here this morning and, and you're moving in that direction toward the mechanics of all of it rather than the person of all of it, what, what is it you can do to correct the problem? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 5. He says, remember. Remember. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. And that's the first thing. Just remember. You remember? You remember when you first got saved, guys? Oh my goodness. Do you remember that passion that you had for souls? How you couldn't wait to tell other people? And man, it was just, I mean, the doors would open and I mean, it was like Disney World for you, man, to be able to tell other people about Jesus. Do you remember when you would get so excited about the things that you were finding in the Word of God that you, if, you, if there was nobody around you, you'd call somebody up just to, to tell them about the incredible thing that you just saw in the Word of God and you wanted to, to share that with, with somebody. When you're leaving Jesus, if you want to correct the problem, He says, listen, the first thing to do is remember. Now for a lot of you, you, you see, and the reason the Lord, I think He puts that first is because a lot of you can't remember. And what it does is reveal to you a greater need that you have in your life. The need for you to come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He wants to have with me. You see, if you can't remember when you entered into that relationship, chances are real good you never did. So He says, remember. Remember from whence thou art fallen. And you see, you need to understand that. It wasn't that you were just and all of a sudden I just, whoa, hey, where'd my first love go? No, what, what he says is you've fallen. You've left your first love. You left it. Now, and the good news about that is when you leave something, you can go back and get it. You know, If you lost it, you're, you, wow, hope you find it. But if you left it, you can go back and you can get it. So he says, first of all, remember, and then next, Repent. Repent. Repent is, is, is now. This is not penance. <gasps> you know, and trying to work up all kinds of emotions about how bad you feel because this has happened to you. And you know, the longer you can feel bad about it, the better you're going to ultimately feel. You know, it, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about repenting. 
you've left him. You, you've left him for something else. Some other love. Love of self, love of money, love of this world, love of the things of the world. I, I, I don't know. You, you've left him, though. And to repent, is it's a turning. You, you're going back. You're heading in, the, in a different direction now. Remember, yeah, and then repent. And then look, look at the next thing. Repeat. Repeat. He says in verse 5, and do the first works. Repeat. Do the things that you did at the first. Do you remember what those things were? You know what? It was so basic back then, wasn't it? You know what? Basically, there's three talks that comprise the Christian life. This is how we all got in. The Lord talks to you through His Word. You talk to Him through prayer. And you talk to others about Him. And you know what? That was the Christian life for us when we first got in, wasn't it? And He says, you know what? Go back and do the first works. Just repeat what you did at the very beginning. Just get yourself back to the basics. And then He says, or else I will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. And what he wants us to keep in mind here is with the correction is that there is major consequences to leaving your first love. And that is his presence will not be in the midst of that church. The church will be removed. He will not be in the midst of that life. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. I'm just saying the hand of God. Not on your life once you've, you've left Him. Oh, there's that brief time where you can continue doing all those things, but you need to remember, repent, repeat, and understand that the removal is there. And then the call is, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Do you hear the Spirit this morning? Is he, is he saying anything to you about your relationship with Him? About something that's going on in your life in the midst of all of the busyness and all of the, the activity of all of the things that you're doing in the Lord's work? Is the Lord trying to tug on your heart and say, Hey, I'd like to be reconnected with you again as the head of your life as the head of this church. Let's pray. With our heads bowed, I would like for you to take just a moment to think through your life and I'm I'm blessed to be a co-laborer with you. I want you to know that. I'm 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 thrilled that the Lord has has put us together in this place, and that there are so many positive things going on in this church, just like it was in Ephesus. But boy, I'll just tell you, I've had to step back this week in my life, and I've just had to say, Oh Lord, help me not to get to the point to where. All of these things are going on and yet I've left the reality of you and your
your person. Some of you, it's not just a danger. Some of you, it is a reality. It's happened. And you know it. And through the course of today, the Lord's been speaking to you about that. He's given you the plan. He told you how to correct it. I'll carry out those three simple little things. Because he says, you run the risk of me removing your candlestick. And oh guys, there's churches all over this country. It's a shame. Churches that at one time, all of these things could be said of them. But you know what happened to them? They left their first love. They didn't see it happening. And all of a sudden, wham! candlestick was removed and now everybody's going what's going on what happened and you know what it did happen in the church at Ephesus you can't go to the church at Ephesus today we've got to be very careful in these last days of this Laodicean church period that we understand that just because everything's moving along right now is no guarantee of anything and it's not even a guarantee that Jesus Christ is connected to this place right now. So let's understand that as a church. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, man, He wants to be connected with your life. He wants to come into your life. He wants to have that love relationship that we were talking about. But there's a problem. Your sin separates you from that. That's why He came to this earth, to take your sin so you could have that relationship with Him. And that can be yours today simply by calling upon the name of the Lord. Our pastors will be up on either side of the worship center up at the front as this service is coming to a close. And those men will be there to direct you to somebody who can take the Word of God and show you today how you can enter a personal relationship with Him. And Lord, I pray now for those that don't know You that this would be the day of their salvation. I pray for this church that we would heed the warning concerning leaving our first love. And I, I pray, oh God, that we would continue to do these things that you commended the church at Ephesus for. But oh Lord, would you please help us to fall in love with you in a fresh and new way. Keep you at the very center of every single thing. Keeping you as, as what fuels us in all the things that we're doing. Pray for my brothers and sisters that if they've seen today that they have fallen, that they have left you, pray that you would help them this day to deal with that as you've revealed to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.